terms come from? And that's what I want to look at here today is just where our words can get us and the, what the damage is that they can do and, and where they come from in the things that we pursue that we ought not and how it really boils down to pride. And how we need to overcome pride by approaching God in humility. And if we will do that, and if we come to him humbly, then we will find that he actually comes for us. And this is a very important thing for James that he handed down to the Christians that he was writing to almost 2,000 years ago, but are still valuable to us today. So I want to begin by going to James chapter 3. If you happen to have a Bible, James chapter 3, if you want to open up there, I'm going to beginning with verse 13. It says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James' focus is on wisdom here and the wisdom that we are supposed to have, but also describing the wisdom that unfortunately we all too often have, the wisdom of the world and how it is that pride. Not in the sense that we always think of, because I think a lot of time when we hear the word pride, we think about people who are really arrogant and boastful. But that, of course, is not the only aspect of pride. It really is our selfishness in general, the things that we desire that we shouldn't, our self-seeking. One of the most famous terms of phrase for this is Aleister Crowley's who said, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That's kind of become a credo for Satanists, and so it's incredibly explicit. But this is what the world teaches everyone to do, to make yourself the most important thing in the world, to, to do what is best for number one. And when we do that, all it leads to is confusion and self-destruction. It doesn't result in peace, which should be our desire. And peace from a biblical perspective is not just the absence of conflict, as important as that is, and that's something that we're going to see here today as well, but peace is more than that. It is something of its own. It is health. It's the concept of shalom from the Jewish standpoint, that it's being whole, something that was very important to James. He did not want Christians to be double-minded, to be split in their loyalties, to be confused to be broken, to be vacillating on the waves. These are all things that he speaks of that instead we are supposed to pursue perfection, by which he means completeness, being everything that God desires for us to be. And so to be at peace, to have health, is another way of defining that. And we have to understand that that comes from God only when we come to God. Because if we don't, and if we persist in our self-seeking, then instead of peace, we will have war, which is what he then moves on to describe. James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The church that James was writing to was a deeply conflicted one. And based on the context of what we have in the book, it seems as though the problem they were having was the divide between the rich and the poor. And James has a lot to say to condemn the rich and hold them accountable for their greed and for their lack of concern and love for others. But here he talks about covetousness, which would seem to be directed mostly at those who have less. And he says that what's tearing the church apart is coming from them. And covetousness, of course, is covered by the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20, and there how God says that we are not supposed to covet anything that belongs to anybody else. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't want things, of course. Yeah, we, we should want better for ourselves. We should work on improving our lot in life, but that is not the same as covetousness. To covet is to want what cannot be yours, that you have no right to, that belongs only to someone else. And that was going on in this church, and it was leading, James says, to murder. Now, there are some experts, there are scholars who think that he actually meant that literally, that it had gotten so bad in the fights that these people were having that someone had actually, they had come to blows and somebody had died. Now, we can't know that for sure. He doesn't actually lay out the, the case for us to be certain, and I tend to think that that's not what happened, but it is a possibility. Now, at the very least, though, he is saying that these members of this church had grown to hate one another. And the reason we can say that is because it is covered elsewhere as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, "'You have heard it that it was said to those of old, "'You shall not murder.'" And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And that's picked up by the Apostle John as well in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so Jesus and John are clear on this. I believe that what James says falls into this as well, is that hatred is essentially murder because to hate someone is to desire their destruction to, to kill them just brings that to its logical conclusion but if we are doing this if we harbor this feeling toward one another then we are seeking the destruction of those who are created in god's image and so that's to attack him something that james also describes in james chapter 3 he talks about how if how irrational it is, really, to praise God from one side of our mouth, but then to curse one another from the other side. And a curse, of course, is not just swearing, the way that we maybe think of it. It's to draw down a curse, either a divine one or a demonic one, to actually harm someone else. That this is what was occurring. This is what is possible within the church, and it has consequences. As he points out, it was leading to unanswered prayer things they were praying for, they didn't receive. Now, of course, that maybe raises a question. Is James right about this? Because Jesus says, it talks about in Matthew chapter 7 and in John chapter 14, that if you ask, it will be given to you. Whatever you ask in his name, the Father will provide. 
And so how is it that this can be possible? Is James wrong? Should we still be able to pray for whatever we want to? And I would hope that we could all answer no, that we're not just free to pray for whatever we want, and that this really is just completing the thought of what Jesus had in mind, because nowhere does Jesus represent the fact that God is just some type of genie to grant us whatever wishes it is that we have. It does not work that way. And as a point of comparison, one of you very well could ask me for a million dollars, but you're not going to get it, because I, I, hopefully you can at least guess. I don't have a million dollars to give you, <laughs> but if you know me, you know that. It should be obvious. It should be the same with God. If people actually knew him, they would know that he does not have evil to give, and so we should not even bother to ask for it. He gives every good and perfect gift. That's what it says in James chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, if we don't even bother to ask for good because we lack the faith for it, then obviously we're not going to receive it. And so we should pray in faith. But we also have to understand that if we ask for what is not good, then we're not going to receive it either. Those prayers are going to go unanswered. The challenging thing about that, of course, is sometimes the things that we ask for are good at least in a vacuum, and we still don't get those answered. And believe me when I say that that's a very painful thing to have to endure. But we can try to understand that even if we didn't get it and it would have been good, that doesn't mean that it is best, that God knew better than we did. That's in situations, again, where, sure, it seems like there would not be any problem with what we requested. The people that James is writing to, they were going further than that. And we sometimes go further than that, where we ask for things that are selfish. We should not expect that they are going to be given. We need to stop being so arrogant as to think that we know better than God and to be disappointed with him when those prayers go unanswered. Instead, we should try to recognize maybe this is not what we should have requested in the first place. Maybe we are not doing what God wants because that is the root of the problem. It's disloyalty. It's cheating on him. That's why James says that it's adulterous. We're trying to have it both ways, to have a relationship with God at the same time that we are still pursuing our proud desires. And this creates enmity with God when we do this, animosity between him and us, because he requires our total devotion. That is what he made us for. He does not tolerate our alliance with the world and its system of selfishness that is at war with him. And it provokes his jealousy. That also goes back to the Ten Commandments. The Second Commandment discusses that, really following on the first. There's only one God, only one to be worshipped, only one who is worthy. And so when we put that anywhere else, he has every right to be angry. For believers, of course, we have accepted the life that he has offered in Christ. And so we do not face final judgment as a result of that, suffering forever apart from him, but we do still disappoint him. It's like parents say, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. And that's the feeling that we can experience, that we put God through, and we can know that, to grieve him. How Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 describes it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
If we are being malicious, then we grieve God. If our hearts harbor that type of anger and that type of self-seeking, covetousness, at the same time that he is there, then it pains him. And that is a horrible thing to consider. But it is also a hopeful thing to consider because at least he is there telling us that we are going wrong, giving us the opportunity to turn around, to turn to what we continually need. This is where James then goes in verse 6 of chapter 4. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. More grace. In the face of what we do, that is still what God offers. Grace that exceeds his jealousy. What he could do in his justice, yet he continually offers mercy. And it's grace that exceeds our enmity, that animosity. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were the enemies of God and we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is what God has given this grace has to be accessed through humility. Pride is the disease for everyone, whether coming to God for the first time or whether a believer and still growing in sanctification in the process of drawing near to him. That is what we are sick with, and the only cure is found in submission. And that, by the way, is what I believe it means to resist the devil. Because James does make it very clear and so does John and Paul and Peter and Jesus himself, that Satan is real, but he is not all-powerful. He and his forces are not everywhere at all times, overseeing everything, the opposite of God. They are not the cause of every single thing that goes wrong in our lives, and they can't force us to do anything. What they have done is to inspire that system of selfishness that exists in the world that tempts us, but we are still responsible for our choices, and we don't fight them directly. Instead, the only thing that we can do is turn to God, because if we kneel before him, that is what makes it so that the enemy cannot stand before us. That is what we have to rely upon. And James drives this home with some very harsh language to say that we are unclean, stained by our sin and our double-mindedness. That's the reality that we have to mourn. As Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
If we have a blithe disregard to the danger of sin, then it's going to lead to disaster. We have to come to terms with how far fallen we are from God and what we were intended to be. We have to regret it. But that doesn't mean being perpetually gloomy. It just means that we're supposed to come to repentance because it's repentance that then leads to true joy. It's repentance that gives us the opportunity to have a new pride, not in ourselves, but one that is sourced in Christ. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31 say, Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories or boasts, let him glory in the Lord. There is hope for us that does start with regret. It's an idea a lot of people don't like to have to think about, that we should have to regret the things that we do, but we have to. And we have to understand that regret is just a starting point because you can very easily end up in error on either side of regret, either having it but not taking it seriously enough and thinking, oh, that wasn't great, but it doesn't matter, or taking it too seriously on the other side and saying, what I did was so horrible, I can never be forgiven for that. True repentance is found in the middle. To understand that, yes, we are accountable, but no, nothing can overcome what was given to pay the price. That Jesus, the Son of God, came down to live as one of us and gave his life, infinite and flawless, on the cross for each of us. And then he rose again. And that is the truth, a fact of history that everyone needs to know. Because it was by that that he opened the way for anyone who does repent and recognizes that they are stained, that they can come to him and be washed clean by that life that he gave. That that is what we have to stand on. That we have to accept forgiveness. Because it's available. If we turn, if we come to God, then what we will find is that he comes to us. It's very much what James says is built upon the parable of the prodigal son, who when he decided that he needed to go home, he appeared on the horizon and his father had been watching for him the whole time and ran to him and embraced him. But that is what our father does for us. He lifts us up in his arms once we have acknowledged our lowliness. James in chapter 1, he spoke of how the poor, these people who have this problem with covetousness, that what they needed to do was glory in their exaltation because what was happening here didn't matter in comparison to what God had offered them. And also that the rich, that they needed the glory in their humiliation because it was the experiences that taught them they could not rely upon themselves that that was what could lead them to salvation. Because as Jesus also says in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We cannot do this on our own. And that is the truth for everyone. It is a truth, first of all, for those who are not believers yet. Perhaps there is someone here today who has never made that decision to actually rely upon Christ. And if that is the case for you, then you need to understand what it is that you require. That 
your sins, you do have them. That's a reality. There are things that you have done wrong. You have to be able to admit that, to regret that, but also to know that you are not unlovable. You are not unforgivable. Christ loved you enough to die for you. So let go of your pride. Don't be the enemy of God. Be made his friend by trusting in Jesus. That is the only thing you need. It is the only thing that you can rely upon because nothing else that you do will make you worthy. But you can be made whole if you will go to God through Christ. But I always, when I close a sermon, I like to include something for Christians as well as an invitation just to be thinking about what all this means for you. Because even though there is very clearly a gospel message in what we've discussed here today, James' words were written for you. He was writing to a church because our struggle with pride is ongoing. And so we all need to pray for God's will to be done, not our own. You need to stop splitting those loyalties between God and your selfish desires. You need to continually humble yourself to keep going back to him because he's ultimately the only source of life. And then as you do that, you also need to go out and let other people know about this, to be spreading the word. Because this isn't just the work of pastors and evangelists and church leaders. This is what all Christians are called to. And we all have those opportunities. You need to have your eyes open for them. You need to take them because everyone needs to know. You have to let them hear from you that life can be found, that they can be made complete. That's God's will for them. And it's his will through you. I hope that you will take that seriously, that you will carry that work out. So I thank you for listening, and I believe now we'll call up the praise team to begin again. And while they do that, I'll just say a prayer to close out here. Lord Jesus.